Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. All right, people, you know that's down the third episode 70. If you're listening to Apple, Spotify, and all your podcasts, you can also jump on board the revolution on Twitter at Casey Sturgeon, the YouTube channel as well. And thank you, Unfiltered Band, as uh, we get to talk uh, some uh, hockey today, among other things. And I've been uh, really excited about getting to do this. And as I've told him before, and now we'll say again, I'm a huge fan of his work as we welcome in the voice of our New York Islanders, uh, Brendan Burke. Uh, Brendan, I appreciate this, man. How are you? I'm I'm good. No hard questions, all right? I'm still easing into this hockey season oh, thing. So, please. Uh... <laughs> please. I'm not, I'm not, I, I don't have any. There aren't many things from the offseason to discuss necessarily as far as changes. So there aren't that many hard questions, but we'll get into that. I I, I wanted to to start with with this part because you and I were we're we're just talking about you know we've similar families with kids and and some of the changes in life with the pandemic. And I was just talking about this actually recently with Howie Rose. I don't know how. And I mean this. I don't know how you guys did that and tried to create energy without fan energy, especially because people don't understand who haven't been in that building as much as you and I have what the Coliseum brought. Right. And yeah. and how easy it is to feel that energy. Looking back on it, are you amazed in some ways that that as an industry, we kind of pulled this off the way we had to for so long? Yeah, a, a little bit. I think I think we might have done too good of a job and enabled some people to maybe save some money where they otherwise shouldn't have been able to. Um, but at the same time, you know, when I think back on it, you know, I think about two things. I, and and other people have different philosophies on a, and a play-by-play broadcaster's role. But for me, one of the primary jobs of a television-specific play-by-play broadcaster is to somehow bring the energy from inside the building to the person sitting inside their living room, because that's what's missing. You can see the game. You can hear the sounds on the ice from your TV, but you can't feel it. And I think that's where the broadcaster comes in. It makes you feel it. It can get your heart to skip a beat when you would if you were sitting at the blue line uh, at the Coliseum. And so that's that's how I view the job of being a TV broadcaster. Now, in an empty building, that's hard. But I think when, when I'm thinking about it now, I think that we had done so many games from a studio, from a closet by ourselves, where you were really pretending. You were trying to create energy that wasn't there and you didn't even know what it was supposed to feel like. I think just getting back in the building after that experience kind of energized us in the building. And you you felt like I felt like I had a, an exclusive ticket to a game that that nobody else like. How cool is that? Like, it, it, forget about the broadcast part of it. I got to watch an NHL game with like three people in the building, and I was one of those three people. Like, it's a it was a cool experience, but it was also a responsibility of I'm one of the very few people that can be here, and I want to make you feel like you're here too, which which was hard. But um, like I said, I think we got some energy from just being in the building, even though it was empty, from what we had gone through to get to that point. Yeah, I, I would. I haven't. I haven't been able to, and I'm down here in Atlanta. As you know, I haven't been able to be at UBS yet, and I look forward to it. So I, I need, I, I see through TV. First of all, I, I hear it's gorgeous. It looks gorgeous. All of that state of the art in all of that. <clears throat> New buildings, and you know this from being old Yankee Stadium, New Yankee Stadium. It's to recreate something like the Coliseum is extraordinarily difficult. You don't want to fail the level that Barclays did, and seemingly that's not going to be a problem here. But how did the energy kind of translate this past year from what you felt? As games got bigger, 
what were some of the differences? I know the acoustics and people don't realize this. So you help explain it for people who don't. The Coliseum was was not the, the nicest building in the world. But one of the reasons why concerts were so amazing is it's so low in the roof yeah. and everything is so locked in there. The sound just kind of permeates at a different level. How did it translate season one uh, in UBS? Yeah, I mean, the unfortunate thing is that we didn't get a fair test run because they lost their first six games of the new building. It turned into a long losing streak. And then it was just hard to kind mm. of get that energy back. And they buried themselves in November. And so I think we didn't necessarily get the litmus test of what we had seen the previous season where you're taking a full building to the conference finals. And that was your lasting memory of the Coliseum. I'm sure you remember some days at the Coliseum oh. that didn't sound like that, right? <laughs> there plenty, were plenty of days plenty. where you were begging for some sound in that building. Um, but the one thing that the Islanders ownership did is that they made it a conscious effort. Everybody talked about that intimate environment and that low ceiling. And it became a, a trademark of the Coliseum. And what they did is they did everything they possibly could to keep the ceiling as low as possible in a building that was now modern and seats 18,000 people. Right. So it feels bigger because it has to feel bigger. I believe it's only four feet different. It's four feet higher, the ceiling, really? than it okay. was at the Coliseum. So um, a lot of arenas, a lot of arenas have a lot of dead space just up there to create yeah, too much yeah um and that's where a lot of the stuff gets lost there there's no wasted space in that building they did everything they possibly could to keep it as intimate as possible while expanding from what was a less than fourteen thousand seat arena to something that has more than eighteen thousand seats in it. it they did the best they could and and i'm excited to see it you know we get down to to crunch time and playoff time and even opening night will be fun um you know to to see it full i mean remember last time it was opening night but it was still supposed to be wearing masks and in a pandemic and all this kind of stuff. This October should be a little more normal and, and a real true test of, of what UBS arena is supposed to be. Before we go forward, I want to talk about kind of this season, looking ahead to it a little bit. I, I want to go back to not pretend like last season didn't exist, but I want to go to those two runs because I, I've said this, sports is so powerful, right? especially when you get time this time of year, you think about, you know, back in 2001 and, and the relationship with sports and with baseball, specifically with nine 11 people in their own lives go through things. And there are certain teams. And I believe this that resonate differently. There, there's something that, that just happens. That first one, especially of the two runs, even though the team wasn't as good. And I admit when Bavillier scored the goal, I thought they were going to beat the lightning in this last second time. Yeah. But that run, with nobody in the building, without that feel of the tailgate at the Coliseum and all of that, I felt as a fan how much that group resonated because of the pandemic, because people were going through so many things. Everybody was at home, so amazingly, you're watching, which is great for you on TV. Everyone's watching the games even more so, right? How much did you tangibly feel that as that was going on? And what was it about that team that you think was able to resonate and reach out in that way over those two years? Yeah. You know what? I think that that team, and you could say this about any team, and, and obviously the Lightning would fall into that category considering what they did, um, and they're a good team anyway. But I think you get into, they had to enjoy it. And they had to enjoy playing with each other and spending time together because they were together 24 hours a day. They couldn't go anywhere. They were stuck together. And I think for a lot of teams, you know, they're you go, all right, I've had enough. Like, I just want to go home. And they didn't hit that point. They played it all the way through. Um, and you know what? And it's funny. I, I see this. I draw back on my minor league days, right? I spent 10 years calling minor league hockey. 
to win a minor league championship, you need a special group because you need a group that you let's remember you're playing basically for free in the playoffs, right? You get a playoff share and the deeper you go, the more money you get. And that's the true at the minor league level too, but it's not significant amount of money. So in order to extend your hockey season two months for very little money in a city, probably far away from your family. And the only thing that's on the other end of that is a summer vacation. You got to really have a special group that enjoys playing together and thinks that believes that they can do it. And I learned that in the minor leagues because you can have a good team and then they go, I don't, I don't want to spend two months chasing this thing. And it falls apart really quickly. Um, and I think that was probably the case with some of those teams in that bubble where you're coming back after a long layoff, you're getting together. It's a weird environment. Do we really want to win and go on another bubble out in Edmonton and keep going? Like how much are we really into this? And I'm not saying, I mean, these guys are professional athletes. Trust me. They, they, I'm not saying anybody tanked it here, but if your heart's not in it, right. Who, who was, uh, who, who took a rask, right? I mean, oh, similar thing, right. He left. He had problems yes. at home his, his daughter's right. health and whatnot, but right. like, I'm sure there were a lot of guys that had similar. I don't know if this is worth it right now. Sure. So for a team to do what the Islanders did, I think that's really impressive because they wanted to be there. They enjoyed playing together. They felt they believed they could do something special and they almost did. You know, and I think about, you know, look, Buster Posey and Major League Baseball, Lorenzo, there were a bunch of guys that didn't want to play that season either. And, you know, it's not only the challenges, but, you know, your team family being a family is it's a real thing, but it's got to be a real thing to be away from family during all of that. And you could sense that you can't create that. My fear is, and I, and I want to go back to it, but I'll pull forward for a second, but this is just you know, being fair. And my fear is, you know, Barry Trotz had to have a large part of that. There's, there's, we know the way he was and the way he is. And I think about, forget about just the advancement of players, like watching Brock Nelson from day one with Barry Trotz to now being one of the best two-way centers in the league. He was always a good player, but now he's a great player. And that's an unknown fair to say about kind of where we sit. I mean, that that's gotta be for me is, is if not the headline of this coming season, as far as questions and we'll get to Barzell, that's gotta be on the list, Brendan, how much of that was Barry Trotz and what are they missing when he's not there? It's a, it's a great question. And you're right. That to, to me, that is the headline, right? You're talking about a roster that is intact. I mean, right. You, you take out a, a char and an Andy green, you put in an Alexander Romanov and it's the same team. So, if they're going to be better than they were, where's it coming from? It, and and the only change that we have seen is the coaching staff. Um, and Lane Lambert obviously is going to bring, I would imagine, a lot of the qualities that Barry Trotz did. I think this is the, the classic, everybody that was a Bill Belichick coordinator gets a head coaching job in the NFL. People want what Barry Trotz had, um, or still does have, um, but they felt that they needed to go a different direction. So they... They believe, obviously, and again, this is just from, from looking at it from an outsider's perspective, they obviously believe that Lane Lambert can bring the Barry Trotz things that they liked and change it in a way to better fit this team or the game that they're going to play. What that means and what that translates to, uh, that's, what, that's what we're going to find out in October. Um, it, it'll be very interesting to see, but you would hope that he learned enough from Barry Trotz that whatever Trotz had in that room that built those type of relationships and things that those can be maintained um, throughout. And, and Lane being the associate coach and kind of, you know, we don't know how the coaching staff was used, right? We don't know how Barry Trotz um, just delegated responsibility. Sometimes, sometimes 
assistant coaches are the good guy. Sometimes they're the bad guy. Sometimes they're just good cop, bad cop with whatever Barry Trotz wants to play that day. You know, they're the guy that comes up to him after Barry Trotz reams into somebody after a game. They're the guy that comes up one-on-one next to them and sits down in their stall for 10 minutes. And if Lane Lambert was that guy that built these close relationships with a lot of these guys, then he should have a pretty good handle on this locker room moving forward. So the hope is that he can, I guess, change and evolve some players in a positive way and maybe produce a little more offense while at the same time not losing any of the things that were there and in place the last few years. Now having Andrews and obviously Josh Bailey still who stayed and you know some of these, that's going to help too yeah. because we know about the leadership in the room. This is getting tied, and to your point, whether right or wrong, because I don't think anyone's ever going to explain to me how – you know, firing. When I heard about Barry Trotz not going to be there, I'm like, okay, he doesn't want to do it anymore. You know, obviously, a death in the family. He had all kinds of stuff that they got. Maybe it's just you're never going to be able to explain that to me. But I think naturally, and I'm sure you sense this from people even around the game. Forget about just fans. Everyone's tying this to Matt Barzell. That this is like opening. Okay, now we're going to open up the doors because we've got to get more out of him. And that somehow with the same roster, without you know, look, whether Goudreau was the right guy or Kadri was overpaid, they didn't add anybody. He's going to have the same guys. Maybe there's more Wallstrom with him or who knows what. What's the sense you get about the pressure that that he has going into this season and how much of this seems to now be about him solely taking the next step, Brennan? Yeah, I would caution that narrative just okay. a little bit. I th- I just think, and and I agree that, that yes, we saw an 85-point rookie Barzell under a wide open Doug Waite system. And we know he's capable of that if you abandon all other responsibilities of the game. I don't see that happening. Uh, the Also the narrative that you can't produce offense under Barry Trotz. I think Alex Ovechkin might have something to say about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Nick Bastrom was okay. Oh, I sure. Kuznetsov. I mean, he's a, yeah. he's a bunch of guys, sure. So, like, I don't see it as, oh, well, Barry's gone now. Finally, Matt Barzell can score. Um, so like, I, I get the idea behind it. Um, and, and there might be some truth to it. There may be something to do with it, um, with, with a new system or a revamped system that can unlock some more offensive potential. Mm-hmm. I, I would, I would think that it's more about everybody else. I would think it's more about, all right, Kyle Palmieri was a ghost for the first 40 games oh, last year. Terrible. Can, yes. can he be the Kyle Palmieri they expected on opening night? That would be nice. You know, Josh Bailey had an up and down season, a slow, so many guys had slow starts last year and led to their early demise. Um, You know, I think the biggest question is, can the Islanders get to their potential as quickly as humanly possible this year? Because last year they were dead and buried by New Year's. And trust me, there is, there is going to be a lot of extra chatter around Matt Barzell, especially being a contract year. Um, But is is it more about Matt Barzell? Is it more about the people that are playing next to him? That's that's the question, right? Barzell is a good player. Um, and Barzell, I think, is finally understanding the entirety of the game where he understands that if he plays hard defense, he's going to get the puck back more. And if he gives it up, he's going to get it back. And those type of things that were not necessarily there in year one under Barry Trotz, where he tried to s- zigzag through an entire team twice. It was like, no, pass the puck to Anders Lee, get to a good spot, He'll get it back to you. Trust him. And I think that trust is there now. So it would be nice to get him with some consistent wingers and let him build some of that. We thought we had that with Jordan Eberle, and then he was shipped out the door. Um, you know, And then it becomes the, is Matt Barzell there to get other guys going? And he constantly gets players that are struggling on his line. Or is it 
this guy's doing really well on this line. Let's move him up with Barzell. Because those are two very different, very that's different things from Matt Barzell. Exactly right. And, and I was actually just to expand on what you're saying. Is it his responsibility? Because this is not the NBA. It's like, you know, making players better. But set look, Sidney Cross, there have been a lot of John Tavares. I mean, you know, Islander fans don't want to hear about it. But from, you know, Matt Molson, who disappeared off the hockey earth shortly after that, Brad Boys. I mean, there were a lot of guys, P.A. Parento, who had a huge season, that John Tavares was making look better. And I think Islander fans, and I know this, I am one, look at it and say, okay, well, you know, if they give Wallstrom to him, who's already got, you know, a talented shot and obviously is a work in progress, or Beauvillier, who to me, I've always wondered why is that not happening more because I just love his ability. Is it Barzell's responsibility, Brendan, or not? Right? It's a, the chicken or the egg. I, I want to ask you something that you, you said, and, and even accidentally or not, and I agree with you, you said he's a good player. Yeah. That's the problem, I think, because he's a great talent, right? Like, how do you make a great talent a great player is almost how I feel like fans look at it. And tell me if, if there's not some of that that's reality, where the ability is so heavily at such a high level but the player in total, I think you're right, is a good player. Yeah. Can he be a great player? I think he can, obviously, because he has the things that you can't teach, right? He has the speed. He has the ability to process the game at that speed, which, I mean, there are speedsters all over the league. They're not Matt Barzell. They're not Connor sure. McDavid. You have to be able to sure. process the game and play at that speed. Um, but I think part of it, too, is going back to a point you made, John Tavares. We talk about Matt Barzell's 85-point rookie season. We don't talk about the fact that he did it as a number two center behind a guy who was getting a whole lot of attention from other teams. He's never done that when he's been the guy. Um, and that's not to say that's on him, but he's not surrounded by another John Tavares type player. There is no, and maybe Brock Nelson is becoming that, but there is no second line center where people are worried about, or they're so worried about him that a second line center goes off for a hundred points like Nazem Kadri did last year. Right, like Nazem Kadri is a second line center because th there's a pretty good center up in front of him. That's right. They can't the match up the same way. So, do the Islanders have the depth there to unlock another level of Barzell? I think part of that conversation is is fair to say that Matt Barzell could become a great player and has nothing to do with Matt Barzell. It has nothing to do with him. And I think that's why people are leery of him going into a contract year because is he thinking, man, I could be a great player if I had. X, Y, and Z on my roster, or if I was on this roster with these players. And that's the dangerous part where does he have enough talent surrounding him to become that best, that great player? And, and can the Islanders become a great team with him as the number one guy with uh, not no offense to the other guys on the roster, but without another superstar, you the mentioned Islanders don't have that superstar. Power. They, they don't. And, and, but, but I think to the positive, to your point earlier in our conversation about what they did in that bubble and really for those two years, they were so team-oriented. We think about the identity line. That's the identity of the team. Uh, I'm curious your take on this. I, I've seen in covering baseball predominantly, and I can think of so many of these. I think of you know Dallas Keuchel when the Astros didn't make a move, freaking out, and then all of a sudden the 11th hour, here's Jeff Luno, and maybe realizing is wrong, and Justin Verlander becomes an Astro. Jose Bautista was very upset. The Jays were two games behind the Orioles. They lose the division by 15. The next year, Alex Anthopoulos makes a 10-player deal during the playoffs for the first year in 20 years. A lot of teams get upset internally when the organization doesn't do for them, right? You're you're not helping us. The Islanders strike me, and you're way closer than I am to it. 
as a team that almost would think of this as some sort of a compliment to them because of how much they are together and believe in the unit. Is is there buy-in to that, that maybe the offseason would affect other teams and they'd look at it and say, hey, we didn't get a guy, but this team specifically may not even care about that? Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we tried to, I don't want to say we tried to sell this narrative last year, but it became a talking point of, can the Islanders be good early because they brought back the same team from the year before? didn't work out that way, but there has to be some level of comfort where, okay, it's a new coach, but it's not a stranger. And you have the same group of guys and they all know the terminology and they all know what is expected of them. And they can come in and roll from opening night and just go where teams that made big moves, teams that moved out big players and leadership pieces have a lot more catching up to do at the start of the season. So can they use that to their advantage and jump out to a good start and bank some points? Yeah, hopefully. Hopefully they can. But yes, I believe there is a buy-in of a, hey, we are better than we showed last year. Now we have a chance to show it. And I think that that's probably the theme in that locker room of we're good. How many teams, I mean, and I know Colorado probably had said this the last couple of years, losing in the second round over and over and over again. Everybody wants another shot, right? Like this was the group that we thought we could do it in. Man, I wish we had another shot. I wish we could run it back and do it again. I don't have a chance to run it back and do it again with the exception of a, a couple of players. This is the same group. So here's your shot. Put your money where your mouth is, so to speak. And I, and I think that, you know, Lou Lamorello will never tell us what his plans are. But or I guarantee anyone. you he has, he has a plan. <laughs> this is not just him winging it, right? So this is his plan. We'll see if it works or not. But yeah. th this is thought out. <laughs> as, no as road trip. People might think it's not. This is a thought out process from one of the best GMs in the history of the game. No road trip, right? So that's going to be part of the narrative. We don't have to start that way. Yep. And no long postseason the year before where they had two of them and the bubble and all the emotion and guys were tired. And there's going to be a lot of that. We'll see whether or not it pans out. Uh, somebody who never seems to get... I, I got to ask you about working with Butch because <laughs> I, I think he, from, from a just as a viewer standpoint and a fan, the dynamic of being an all-time player in a franchise for which you're you're calling a game, right? So you got that. And coming off and genuinely, you can even tell, sincerely so, as such a fan of the team and the sport and not being too much of one where you don't have enough personality or too much of the other and, you, and you're not credible, that is so difficult to... I don't think you could do it on purpose. It has to be almost accidental the way he does it. How much do you marvel at being around that? And, and how much is it is it almost as you start to kind of work with him over the years, just notice the difference between him and seemingly from me, Brendan, everybody else in this unique way that, that he is, he's such a stature of a, of a player, yeah. but he's like a giant kid when you guys are doing the broadcast. Oh yeah. No, the, like the thing about Butch that I try and impress upon everybody that, that asked me about him, that's Butch. You see it. Like he's not putting on an act. He's not on TV. He's the same. The second we turn off the microphones and the cameras as he is when we turn them on. Like it, it is very, very, very much the same. Um, but I, I, I marvel at him because he's one of those hockey lifers, right? He started playing hockey as a child on the, you know, and the frozen lakes in Winnipeg and went through hockey in an incredible era, right? Like he came up in the sixties and seventies uh, and played, didn't have the, the, free path to the NHL, worked his way through the minors, played in Springfield, won a Calder Cup in the American Hockey League, 
played his entire career in LA and was perfectly happy being a king and is one of the all-time great LA Kings and then gets traded against his will to Long Island that he wasn't really happy about, turns it into four Stanley Cups in a Hall of Fame caliber career. He should be in the Hall of Fame, but he's not. Um, and then he becomes a coach. And he coaches in Europe. And he coaches in the minors. And he wins championships in the minor leagues. And he becomes an NHL head coach. And he coaches the Islanders. That didn't work out, but he coached in the NHL. He was a, a general manager in different leagues when he was in the minor leagues. And when he was in Europe, he was the GM. He's just been in hockey his whole life. And he has done almost every job there is to do within the game of hockey. So when he speaks, he's speaking from a position of knowledge about the entirety of the game. He can talk about being a head coach and he can talk about killing penalties and he can talk about winning faceoffs, and he can talk about winning con smites all because of he's been through it all. And it's fantastic to have. Um, and so for me, as a broadcaster that is literally half his age and a guy who wasn't born when he won his fourth Stanley Cup, to be able to have that guy sitting next to me while I do what I do and let him do what he does, it's worked out really well, I think, for the two of us because we come at it from different perspectives, but I know that I need to pull as much information out of his head as I can because that's the value of our broadcast. I've said this to you before. I've said off this off the air. I'm a huge admirer of, of what you guys do, and I think you're fantastic. And I think I've even said this to you before. One of the things that that you guys do, which I think is so difficult to do, and I want to chat baseball for a couple minutes before we get out the door, so I'll tie it in this way. It may be tougher sometimes in baseball because the game is is so long, right? So in a seventh inning when the team's down 10 to 2, I mean, really you're anecdoting the hell out of it, right? Just to, yeah. to get to the finish line. Hockey at least is giving you a lot of action. to but you, You're able to bring the energy in a third period of a game in a bad season that a lot of guys can't do. How much do you feel an onus as a broadcaster in moments like that? Because everybody asks you guys about what's it like when you called when you know when they when they win this game or win an overtime game, and nobody asks what to me is really the true test of somebody who's really great at it like you. How are you keeping me involved when the team sucks? When you're down five goals, the goalie just got pulled in the third period. There's nobody in the building. Do you feel like the challenge and onus of that? Take me to kind of those moments as a broadcaster, because in a long hockey season, they're coming to you. Yeah. Sure. Um, it's not something I think about, to be honest. Um, yeah, there are Tuesday nights in January that they're losing, and it's the third period, and you go, who's watching this? And, you know, we can't turn ourselves off, right? I know everybody else at home is going, yeah, there's something else on here. But, you know, for me, there's two things I think about. One is... I did a lot of bad minor league hockey and I did that for 10 years and I did it on the radio by myself without an analyst, without a, anybody else to help. So that helps in terms of preparing you as a broadcaster. The other thing I think about is as much as I love being in sports, the reality is I'm in the entertainment business and I, and I, and I put on a TV show, right? I mean, it's, it's a different way to look at it, but I'm an entertainer on a television show. That's my job. It's not sports. I mean, it is, but it's not. So if you think about it as, okay, I've got 20 minutes left. Let's make this entertaining. How can we do that? And when we do that, I think when the game is more already in hand, it kind of takes the, the, the handcuffs off a little bit and gives you the ability to ignore the game a little bit more. 
and work Butch in a little bit more and ask him a little more inquisitive questions and just kind of get to more things that you would never be able to do if you were following the puck 98% of the time. So, you know, you'll hear it. People will hear it if you watch a preseason game, right? We're going to do two preseason broadcasts of Islanders games. We're not following the puck. I mean, I'll tell you who has it and we'll follow it a little bit, but it's a conversation and it's, it's, it's a TV show. Um, and I think when you get into some of those games like that, it kind of evolves a little bit. Like if they're down five, one going into the third period, you kind of go, all right, this is different. What, what do you want to get into here? And we might even have that conversation off the air before the period starts. Like, Hey, where, where can we go with this? Just to try and keep it entertaining because that's what we want. We want people to go, you know what? They didn't win, but it's still a good time. I enjoyed watching it, you know, and, and what was it? Pat Foley, when he signs off, says after a loss, I hope you, you might not have appreciated the outcome, but I hope you enjoyed the broadcast. You know, like you want that feeling afterwards. Like, you know what? They lost. I can't control that as much as fans might think I can. Uh, I can't control if they win or they lose. So I just do what I can control. Well, you know, they think you can. I mean, do yeah, it, I know. You know absolutely. Kevin, if, if there's a no hitter going on, it's our fault. I mean, it's always yeah. my favorite. It's like, you know, everybody who ever tweeted. Um, a lot of people that I wanted to close here for a couple minutes, every everybody who is an Islander fan, like when, you know, you come to the Islander family right now, they know you as the voice of the Islanders. And I think some people who didn't know your background were surprised your love for baseball, your relationship with it in the minor leagues and working in it. And so like when they saw like calling a Yankee, like, Oh, like the Islanders guy, like they didn't realize. Right. And it's funny how that business business works that way. Yeah. Give for fans who are because, you know, most people will watch this be Islander fans and they're sitting there from the hockey standpoint. A lot of them forget Yankees or Mets. Where did your love of baseball begin? Like, what's the background of that for you? Yeah. So when I was a child, my dad was the Yankee beat writer for both the Newark Star Ledger and the Bergen Record. So when I was a kid of. I guess seven years old is when he got that job. I was around the Yankees and around baseball from a media level, right? I would go with my dad on a summer morning and go before they'd let people in the ballpark, fans in the ballpark, and I'd sit and watch batting practice that wasn't open to the public. And I'd go down and be in the dugout and just kind of be around uh, and go on road trips with them, you know, it's summertime. And so my dad was at every game and I would go with him. And I was nine years old when he took me on a trip. And I forget the circumstances that led to it, but I wound up sitting in the radio booth between John Sterling and Michael Kay calling a game as a nine-year-old kid. This was actually right before my ninth birthday. And obviously it's a pretty good place to sit, right? You're sitting, yeah. you're sitting <laughs> behind home plate. You're sitting yeah. in the press box behind home plate. You've got a, a commentary from two great broadcasters in each year. And, you know, I think the conversation was something like this after the game. How did you like that? I said, that was great. And at some point during that conversation, I found out they got paid to do that. Like that was a job. Like some people were teachers and lawyers and doctors. These two men got paid to sit and talk about baseball. Yeah. And that was their job. And ever since that moment, I was like, yeah, that that's what I want to do. And so my love for broadcasting, or at least the, the genesis of my broadcasting was from that moment. And everything after that was geared towards being a broadcaster. And to be honest, it was geared towards being a baseball broadcaster because that's where it came from. Now at the same time, because the next question is, well, how did you get into hockey? I was born in Wisconsin. My dad was covering the Brewers and Packers when I was born, went to Marquette. And so I grew up in Wisconsin where you play hockey. And at four oh, years, at sure. four right. years old, People don't I realize that other places yeah. in the country, right? Like at four years old, I had skates on and was playing hockey. Right. So I've played right. hockey since I was a young boy. 
all the way through. I played in high school. I played club hockey in college. I've played hockey my, my entire life. So then when I started broadcasting and then I got the opportunity to broadcast a hockey game, I was naturally pretty good at it because I had such an understanding for the game and my passion for broadcasting, put the two of them together. And I was pretty good pretty quickly. And so hockey kind of took me with it more than I chose hockey. Hockey kind of promoted me. I was 24 years old and in the American Hockey League, one step below the NHL. And at the same time, I was climbing the baseball ladder. I was in single A baseball at 24 years old, which is a million miles from Major League Baseball. Oh, yeah. A, a lot mil- of us rides in, away. In, a lot of us rides away. Sense, in every yeah. sense, it is a million miles <laughs> away from Major League Baseball. Uh, so hockey kind of took me with it. But that's not to say that I don't still love baseball and have a, have certainly a soft spot for baseball in general. And then that specific Yankee radio chair has a very special place in my heart. So be able to sit in that chair was was pretty cool. Yeah, I was just going to, if I can just follow the finish up, I'm curious, like, you know, from a broadcasting standpoint, TV and radio, you referenced this before, right? Your job on television, because we see everything, right? Yeah. It's a different painting of a picture because the picture is already there. Transitioning from hockey to baseball is far different. You have been blessed with, obviously the ability, but the experience of working through both at the same time, how impossible would it be if you didn't have that to then make the transition from TV play-by-play for hockey, right? To like what radio and baseball is like, because it's, I I mean, it's certainly some of the mechanics are the same, but it's a totally different job of of what you're trying to do and the amount of time you have in between (laughs) action to do it, Brendan. Yeah, no, it, it's it's amazing. I, I remember when I was I was doing minor league baseball, minor league hockey back and forth, right? Like it, there was one April where I was going back and forth. It was like the last week of the hockey season, the first week of the baseball season. I was literally doing games every other day in different sports. And I remember, and this was when I was doing hockey on radio, I remember having to stop myself because if you were to do hockey, if you were to do baseball on radio the way you do hockey on radio, you would say the pitch in the dirt to catch your slides to his right blocks it picks it up and throws it back to the pitcher right. you don't do that right you just no. say ball one like right. it's just right it's so, that's right like you, you just it's 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 a mindset of okay what are we doing here and yeah. slow down because it, this is a very slow game and you don't need to get it all out in one breath the way you do in hockey um so having had that experience of just a, a mental shift i think sure. probably going into this um but I think that now here I am, you know, I've done hockey for the last 16 years. I've been a professional broadcaster for that long. It was weird going into the Yankee radio booth and having it feel normal, right? Like I expected it to be this, this unbelievable, you know, butterflies in your stomach and just, oh my God, what am I doing here? And it just was like, okay, this is my job tonight. It would have been 15 years ago. Oh but my now, God! Yes, right. <laughs> so, I, you know, like you, you th- I think about it. I think there's a lot of broadcasters that would say this sure. that have, have made it to this level. Did I think I was ready for the NHL at 25 years old? Absolutely. Was I? No chance. <laughs> no chance. Right. Like, there's not a chance in the world. Some guys are. Joe Buck was right. Like he was ready for that sure. moment. Like, great. Sure. Kenny Albert probably was. Like yep. me. I thought I was. I listen to tapes now from back then. It's like, oh my God, no, not even close. So, like, as much as I wanted to speed through that part of my career, uh, I'm happy I didn't. And I'm happy I got to work out some of the kinks to get to this level where when you get here, you're ready for it. Because I think yep. that's a big part of it. And I think that was that was the weird part is that I haven't done baseball in such a long time. 
but through all of the other experience I've had, I was still ready for it when I got that chance. I appreciate you so much. I'm so happy that you did this and thank you for hopping on. I will be uh, locked into every moment of uh, the uh, season that's upcoming here. Jeez. What is it like? 25 some odd days away already. Yeah. I mean, yeah, we're, uh, we're in rookie my, camp my, and uh, my goodness, coming up. my goodness. Yeah. Appreciate you. Thank you, Brennan. No, thank you, Casey. We'll get you up to a game at Belmont. Come on. Oh, I definitely will. I'm going to, I'm going to keep uh, bugging Hornick that I'll get up there. Eventually one of these we'll days. Get you. Uh, unfiltered revolution, jump on board at Casey Stern. Keep listening to the podcast and uh, thank you for being on board for episode 70. Thank you for listening to believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.